Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. Carrie asked me, I think it was yesterday, I sent out an email this week, you know, one of those sort of housekeeping emails that we send out every once in a while, just to remind us all, you know how dad gets the family together every some, once in a while and says, we need to have a little chat about some things, and everybody's like, okay, dad, that's great, well, that's good. Well, she said, did anybody respond to your email you sent out? And I said, um, no, actually there was one person, one person always responds to my emails, uh, and I don't know where she is, that's Bobby, she, she always responds to my emails, just, she just writes back and says, thank you, Father, every time, so um, I said, no, nobody responded, and, um, and uh, I, I was in trouble by that, well, I have to, I have to take that back, uh, there was a, an amazing response this morning, uh, because in Matins, the church was basically full, this morning. So um, I don't know if you did that for me or for the Lord, uh, but it, b- both are good. <laughs> In either case, uh, they're both good, good reasons. You know, um, this has nothing to do with my message, but I do want to say something about this and how this works. Um, a- a- as a bit of a metaphor, if, uh, if Warren Buffett came to us and said, if all of you if everyone in the entire parish, all the members, show up, uh, you know, on time, I mean right on time, not, not a nanosecond late, uh, every Sunday for a year, I will give all of you one million dollars. But if one person is half a second late, nobody gets anything. Now, Metaphors, as far as metaphors go, you know, they break down at a certain point, okay? But a metaphor is meant to be communicating something. That metaphor that I just popped into my head, that is accurate. That is how life in this world, the Christian life, works in the Christian community, as far as the metaphor goes. Now, you're all looking at me funny, thinking, hmm, no, it's true. That's the problem. We don't understand that and we don't accept it. I talk about this all the time. When we are not living up to our Christian faith, we are injuring one another. People sin. I've said this to you before. It's a shocking, very heavy thing. It grieves me deeply all the time for myself. People sin because of our failure to love them. Now, we have a very hard time accepting this because of our rugged individualism and because of our wrong-headed sense of equity. But God's equity is not our equity. We were created indelibly linked to one another. Our virtuous deeds bless others and our sin hurts others. Now, if you stop to think about this in a very practical, tangible way, it's obvious that this is true. People's sin hurts other people, quite literally. 
We just don't want to take it beyond that. I can do things that will hurt you. And you can do things that will hurt me. And I do do things that hurt you. And you do do things that hurt me. That grieve me. That grieve you. That cause pain. Disappointment. Even cause sin. We are linked one to another. And in the by and by when it's all reconciled and everything's been sifted. Yes, we will be rewarded. We will be, you know, recompensed for the life we lived, not for the life someone else lived in the end. But in the here and now, what we do and what we don't do radically impacts one another. And if we could grasp that, if we could truly grasp that as a motivation to live holy lives and to love one another, all the things that we would see, really, in this life, the great miracles that we would see in this community. Maybe we could even produce a saint one day. When we started the parish, that was my first, that was my desire. I said, Lord, by the end of my life, I'd love for St. Patrick's to churn out at least one saint. Wouldn't that be something? But think of Warren Buffett and that million dollars he promised you. He didn't. You didn't know that wasn't, that was actually real. He called me this morning and he said, he said, if you can get everybody to behave perfectly for a year without, no, I'm kidding. But actually that metaphor is accurate. You know, God's not going to give us a million dollars, but God will give us the grace of the Holy Spirit and do miracles in our midst. He will, he will pour out grace if we come together as a community and live holy lives. Well, two weeks ago we heard uh, about the parousia, the second coming and the judgment. Last week we heard about the parousia and the second judgment. Today we heard uh, John the Baptist uh, sending his disciples to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? And most of us, of course, know that Adventus means coming. And this season is all about the Lord's coming. First, his coming in judgment at the end of the age. Today, his coming to preach the kingdom. John's coming in judgment to sift. And his coming, ultimately, what we are working towards in the nativity as a holy babe. As we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the purpose of Advent of this pre-Christmas season is to prepare us for the nativity feast. And in order for Christ to be born in us as he was in the Virgin Mary, and for us to really embrace the Holy Babe in joy, we must first adequately fear the coming judgment. That's how we are prepared for the joy of Christmas, is through um, inspection and sobriety in the face of the coming judgment. So the end gets us ready for the beginning. And the beginning, Christ's first coming, is not past. It's not just a historical event. It remains with us today. Christ is still, in a sacramental sense, and this is a beautiful thing to capture, Christ is still a holy babe. He is still. We still relate to him as a holy babe. He is still being born in those hearts that are prepared by the sobriety of spiritual knowledge. And so this season begins, it begins with the parousia, the second coming. And the Latin word for parousia, 
Parousias, Greek, which refers to the second coming, the Latin word for that is Advent. That's the name of our feast. The name of our feast is essentially the second coming. We begin by preparing for the reckoning so that we can embrace the holy baby Jesus in the fullness of joy. Now going along with this word Adventus and theme of coming, I want us to look this morning at another important word in the Christian vocabulary. From earliest times, this word was used uh, liturgically in the liturgical gathering. It was used. It was used as a creedal affirmation. It was used even as a greeting among Christians when they would meet in the marketplace or in the church. And interestingly, you may not know that this word is also used in the ecclesiastical court to pronounce the judgment of excommunication on an unrepentant sinner. In fact, that's the one way it's used in the scriptures. Many of us remember Maranatha, this word, was very popular in the 70s and 80s. You know, there were churches popping up all over the place, denominations calling themselves Maranatha. There were Christian bands, Maranatha bands, and uh, Christians started greeting each other all the time by saying Maranatha to one another. It's an Aramaic word, and it's transliterated in the New Testament with, and in the Didache with uh, Greek letters. And the, the meaning of the term, which we may all think we know, um, we sort of know it, but it is a little ambiguous because it can sort of mean two, two things, two different meanings, depending on how the word is spelled out. It can be spelled out as one word, Maranatha, or it can have a hyphen, Maran hyphen Atha. And depending on how it's spelled out, it can mean two different things. It can be, first of all, a creedal declaration associated with the central claim of our faith that Jesus is Lord. That's our, the original, you know, kerygma, the apostolic preaching, creedal declaration, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our faith in shortest terms. And Maranatha can mean the Lord has come. So Jesus Christ is Lord, the Lord has come. Very closely associated. But it can also be, which you probably are more familiar with, a cry of hope, a prayer, a plea looking forward to his return, in which case it means, Lord, come. Lord Jesus, come. Or come, Lord Jesus. So it can even mean, the Lord has come as a creedal affirmation, or come, Lord Jesus, as a prayer and a plea and a cry of our hearts. But in any case, both situations, Maranatha is connected to judgment and the reconciliation of all things, of bringing this creation to its final consummation, at which time there will be a sifting, and the things that are holy will remain, and that which is impure will be burned by fire and destroyed. In the Didache, which is a very important document from the first century, we read this. If any man is holy, let him come. If any man is not, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. Maranatha, amen. The amen here tips us off that this is probably a liturgical phrase from the actual liturgy and the prayer of the church. But in this case, we see that Maranatha is associated with, with judgment, with a reckoning. Let the holy man come, let the sinner repent. Why? Maranatha. 
Whether we interpret this as let the sinner repent because the Lord has come or let the sinner repent because the Lord is coming, in either case, they both work, right? In either case, the admonition is fueled by the Lord's coming. St. Paul uses the Aramaic term in his closing salutation in his first letter to the Corinthians. And in this case, the term is actually associated as a, it's a formula of ecclesial judgment. Let me read a, la- a couple of verses to put it in context for you. This is the very closing salutation in his letter. He says, all the brethren greet you, greet ye one another with a holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That's the phrase. You probably never actually paid attention to that. This is the only time it's used in the scriptures as a, as a couplet of judgment. Let him be anathema maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you in Christ Jesus. Amen. End of letter. If anyone among you love not Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, accursed, maranatha. So most of us might be surprised to find this term maranatha associated with being excommunicated from the church. And yet this is the primary way that the term is used in the scriptures. And in the coming centuries in the early church, in the ecclesiastical jurisprudence of the church, anathema maranatha, it's the standard formula, couplet, which pronounces the judgment of excommunication on an unrepentant sinner. And the force behind this judgment can be either because the Lord has come, you have not loved him, or the Lord is coming, so you better repent. Maranatha. This solemn formula of excommunication, anathema maranatha, it's found in many uh, early church documents. And I'm going to just read you two passages, one from the 6th century and the other one from a little bit earlier. The first one says, If anyone henceforth deceives a bishop in such a manner, let him be anathema maranatha before God and his only angels. The second one, brace yourselves, this is not in our 21st century um, cultural language. It may sound a little harsh to our ears. He who dares to despise our decision, let him be stricken with anathema maranatha. May he be damned at the coming of the Lord. May he have his place with Judas Iscariot, he and his companions. Amen. Okay, so shape up. (laughs) That last one, as I said, is a bit harsh to our modern ears. Um, But I want to say, so that there's no confusion or nobody goes running out crying and in depression, uh, these pronouncements of anathema maranatha that Paul pronounced also in the New Testament, uh, these were always reversible. The entire point of this was to bring someone to repentance. Our God is a redemptive God, and the church is filled with love, even for the sinner. But the problem is, if the sinner doesn't repent, the sinner cannot be forgiven. Forgiveness is not just God's goodwill towards men. Forgiveness is actually the wiping out of sin because someone has received the forgiveness of God through repentance. 
So it's always redemptive. We desire the salvation of all people. But I would also point out that uh, the church was never shy about issuing these stern warnings and judgments in order to bring someone to repentance. And this aspect of the church's ministry is dangerously being written out of our memory by what we hear today, much of the time. Anyway, my point for pointing out this formula of anathema maranatha is to show this strong connection between judgment, anathema, and the coming of the Lord, maranatha, whether it's a reference to his first coming or his second coming. In fact, as you begin to look at this and how it's been used, the ambiguity of the term maranatha, whether it's referring to his first or second coming, this very ambiguity is actually illuminating and helpful to us. In other words, why must we choose? Maybe it's better not to choose. The term actually means both. And when we take both of these things together, we actually understand what Advent is all about. We have to collapse his first and second coming into one illuminating theme. And this is precisely what is communicated to us in this wonderful season. The Lord's comings, both his first and his second, should wake us up and dislodge us from our entanglements in this world. Because we are aware of the coming kingdom and the sifting that will take place, the destruction of the tares, the gathering in of the wheat. We want to be the wheat, right? We don't want to be with the tares. We don't want to be with the goats. We want to be with the sheep. We want to be gathered in with the wheat into God's barn and filled with joy at his coming, not overcome with shame and dread. Maranatha, we cry. Come, Lord Jesus. And this plea is not ever separated from the cradle cry, the Lord has come. And yet we are looking forward. We live our present lives eschatologically. We live in the reality of our future salvation. Our final perfection, which is to come, is what is shaping us now. It's what's forming us and making us who we are. It is the resurrection of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, that we receive in the sacrament of his body and blood. Our reception of this bread of immortality is what is making us immortal in this very life. And as we keep this before our consciousness at all times, it makes us alert and circumspect so that we will not be unwise. We will not be caught with no oil in our lamps when the day comes. We will be alert. And that is what we pray for in so many of our prayers. What do we pray for? That we will have a holy death. We pray. We say, Lord, we do not want a sudden death. We want time to prepare. We want to be in our right mind. We ask our Blessed Mother in the rosary to intercede for us now and at the hour of our death because that moment is so important. The thief on the cross was greatly blessed to be in his right mind so that he could repent at the hour of his death and face the judgment with a clean conscience. I think perhaps the strongest evidence for the stress of Maranatha being come, Lord Jesus, is found at the very end of our scriptures. The very, very end. The very last admonition and plea. The final 
authoritative declaration we have in all of Holy Writ. It is in Greek, by the way, not Aramaic, but it is the exact same cry as Maranatha. We read in St. John's Revelation, chapter 22, at the very end, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. This is the last word of the Bible. This is the bold cry of the Christian who is ready and desirous of the coming of the Lord. Why is it bold? It is very bold. Are you ready to say that? Am I ready to say that? I say it with a little trepidation. It's bold because the cry, we know that when we say Maranatha, it means judgment. The psalmist says, judge me. Oh, whenever I pray that psalm, I sort of like hesitate a little. I get a little quake in my body. Judge me. Whenever I talk to uh, the one over there on the far right, I get a little bit nervous too. He always makes me nervous. When we say, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, this means judgment. But if our conscience is clean, then we are ready. Not just ready, we are anxious. We are anxious for the judgment. Because for those of us who love God, the judgment means final deliverance, eternal joy, the perfection for which we long. And these Christians in the scriptures, they do not say Maranatha with a tepid whimper. They boldly proclaim it with earnest pleading. Come Lord, come Lord Jesus. The more confidently we can cry out Maranatha, the more ready we will be for Christmas and to embrace the Holy Babe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.